Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings wherever in the world you may be listening. And coming up today, we'll be going back to the future with a look at some 80s automotive icons. And I guarantee you, no DeLoreans. But before we get started, I want to thank you guys for all your support of the podcast. And there's a few ways to do that, by the way, whether it's just telling your friends about the show or maybe leaving a quick review. And another way, if you want to support the show, you can visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage. Buy Me A Coffee is just a new way to support creators online, kind of like some other platforms out there, but I honestly prefer Buy Me A Coffee. I just think it's easier for me and for you. And I'll put a link in the show notes for that. But anyway, if that's a way you want to support the show, it's out there for you, and I appreciate it. And I hope your summer's been terrific if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. If you're down there in Australia, I bet you can't wait for summer. The last couple of weeks have been pretty exciting for me in terms of cars. You know, I was up in Monterey, California for Car Week, which is always overwhelming, but I feel like it was really uh, an especially incredible year, particularly at the Pebble Beach Concours. Amazing cars. And I made a lot of great connections that week. And some awesome things are going to be happening here on the podcast as a result of that. So I'm really excited about what's coming. And then, of course, last weekend was the 24 Hours of Le Mans, and I thought that was a very exciting race. If you didn't watch it live, then definitely check it out online if you can. And I was really pulling for the Glickenhaus racing team. They were making their Le Mans debut in the new hypercar class and taking on the big boys from Toyota. And they ran a spectacular race. They finished fourth and fifth overall, which is tremendous for the first time out for a team. And that field in the Le Mans hypercar class is going to get crowded in the next few years. There's actually two classes, Le Mans hypercar and then Le Mans Daytona hybrid. Yeah, a lot of manufacturers are going to be jumping in, Ferrari, BMW, Audi, Porsche. So that's going to be exciting to see what happens there. It's been a great couple of weeks if you're a car nut. So anyway, back to business. Get ready to go back to the 80s. That's coming up right after this. Hey everybody, Maurice Merrick for Model Citizen Diecast. And if you're looking to start your own scale model car collection, they've got you covered. From 143rd scale all the way up to the ginormous 18 scale creations from the Amalgam Collection. And by the way, congratulations to our Model Citizen and Horsepower Heritage Contest winner, Jackson T. Hall of Texas. Jackson, you're the winner of the 143rd scale Corvette C8 in that brilliant yellow. And your model is on the way along with some Horsepower Heritage decals. And thanks to everyone who entered the contest. And if you want to see more great scale model cars, visit the website modelcitizendiecast.com or check them out on Instagram at modelcitizendiecast. They've got something for everyone from race cars to street cars, even some 4x4s. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now it's time to go back to the 80s, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Well, where do we start? Well, how about the Econobox that really launched the whole hot hatch craze? That's the Volkswagen Golf GTI. The world fell in love with the Volkswagen Beetle in the 50s and 60s, and in many ways, it was the right car at the right time. And it's probably the second most significant production car in history behind the Model T Ford, at least in my opinion. But by the early 1970s, the Beetle and its air-cooled siblings were definitely yesterday's news, and sales were slipping drastically, and it was time for a replacement. But when you consider that the Beetle was essentially Volkswagen's very identity as a brand, you realize that was a challenging task. 
Luckily, in the early 60s, Volkswagen had purchased three other German brands from Mercedes-Benz, and those were Auto Union, DKW, and Audi. The Audi brand had pretty much been asleep since before World War II, but Volkswagen planned to relaunch it. And meanwhile, Mercedes had been planning to replace the DKW traditional two-stroke engines with a new 1.5-liter water-cooled four-cylinder that they designed. So when Volkswagen bought those three brands, that engine came with the deal. And what they did was the DKW brand was phased out, and the new Mercedes-derived engine was going to go into a new line of front-wheel drive economy sedans under the Audi brand. And VW set up a separate engineering and design team for Audi. Which brings us back to the question of replacing the Beetle. VW's expertise was with a very specific platform, air-cooled rear-engine economy cars for the masses. But they realized they needed a whole new paradigm. So when it came to making that change, in a sense, the student, Audi, became the master because the new generation of 1970s Volkswagens were basically Audis under the skin. And VW wisely hired Giorgetto DiGiaro to set a new direction for their design language. He's a pretty legendary Italian designer. I've talked about him on the show before, but his geometric folded paper styling was cutting edge, and it resulted in the Volkswagen Passat, the Scirocco, and most importantly, in 1974, the Golf Mark I a two-box front-wheel drive hatchback. And that's the car that saved Volkswagen. And by far, the Golf went on to become Giugiaro's most commercially successful car design. Meanwhile, some insiders at Volkswagen were secretly working on a performance version of the Golf with Bosch fuel injection, a stiffer suspension, lowered stance, anti-roll bars, vented front disc brakes, and alloy wheels. When they revealed the project to Volkswagen management, the bosses approved a limited production run of 5,000. But the new GTI was a smash hit, and they turned out almost half a million of them over the next decade. And by the way, they built 6.8 million Golf Mark 1s in total. Like I said, the GTI really was the car that launched the hot hatch craze. And it was badged as the Rabbit GTI in North America. And I think it was a turning point for young car enthusiasts at the time who'd missed the muscle car era entirely. And 10 years earlier, they probably wouldn't have looked twice at a European car. But the GTI was a new paradigm. It was cheap fun. It didn't take itself too seriously. The tartan interior and the golf ball shift knob were a perfect example of that. And by the way, Lee Iacocca took notice of the GTI, and when he was hired by Chrysler, he enlisted Carroll Shelby to cook up a special edition of the Dodge Omni, which was itself basically a knockoff of the Golf. And finally, I have to give honorable mention here to the Volkswagen Golf Cabriolet, because here in the United States, it was even more popular than the GTI, at least it seemed that way. And I think every sorority girl had one. And they never put the top up, and for some reason they all wore giant bows in their hair. Don't ask me why. It was the 80s. So next up is the Fox Body Ford Mustang. So this was the third generation Mustang. And its popularity in the 80s marked the point when Ford started to recover from the Malays era. And that was brought on by the 1973 OPEC oil embargo and the resulting gas crisis. Just two months after that crisis began, Ford management approved the so-called Fox platform, which was a mid-size unibody design. And basically, it was their attempt 
to produce a world car in order to simplify manufacturing and save money through all of Ford's divisions, the UK, Germany, Australia, and the Americas. And Lee Iacocca, who was a key figure in the creation of the original Mustang, was Ford's president at the time. They fired him later. That's when he went to Chrysler. But the man who really gets credit for the Fox body Mustang is Jack Telnack. He'd been vice president of design at Ford of Europe. And when he was called back to Dearborn in 1976 to lead the work on the new Mustang, he brought a European approach back with him. His vision was to incorporate aerodynamic principles in the design, which was something of a risk because Henry Ford II believed that his cars should have a prominent upright front end. Some people thought Telnack would be committing career suicide by proposing a sloping nose and a sort of toned-down athletic look. But fortunately, Henry Ford II was all in on the concept, and the car was ready by 1978. Ford Advertising called it a new breed of Mustang, and it emphasized how the aerodynamic shape helped the car cut through the wind. Remember, gas crisis, fuel economy. Anyway, it was chosen as the official pace car at the 1979 Indianapolis 500, and they built just under 10,500 Indy pace car editions. So you could get your new Mustang with a four-banger, a V6, or the five-liter V8, and there was even a turbocharged option of that four-banger. But shortly after the car hit the market, the Iranian Revolution caused a panic in the world oil markets, and the gas prices soared once again, killing the 5-liter V8 for a short time. But within a couple years, Ford was committed to bringing performance back and competing with sporty European models, so they released the Mustang SVO, Special Vehicle Operations which had a four-cylinder turbo putting out a modest 200 horsepower. Which is kind of laughable today, but in the 1980s, we had a nationwide 55-mile-per-hour speed limit, and big horsepower was still considered kind of shameful. Throughout the 80s, Ford kept refining that aero look of the car with a more slippery nose and then fared-in headlamps. And in 1987, the GT got dressed up with an aggressive air dam and ground effects, and even louvers on the taillights. And the Ford muscle car was back. Now over at Chevrolet, the third generation Camaro was ready by 1982, but it was riding on the same F-body platform it started with in 1967. The Camaro was even more radical than the Mustang though, with much wedgier Italian-inspired styling. Chevy even badged it as a Berlinetta for a while, which is a term used for many Italian sport coupes over the years. With 225 horsepower, the Camaro IROC-Z edged out the Mustang GT's 200 ponies, but it was 3,300 pounds compared to the Mustang's 2,800. And the Camaro had a massive front overhang, and it was generally huskier in all dimensions compared to the nip-and-tuck proportions on Jack Tilnak's Mustang. To sum it up, the Fox Body Mustang was the high school quarterback's car, and the Camaro was for the guy who played drums in a Motley Crue cover band. And I remember one guy I went to high school with who was a total rocker and he always had a fat roll of $20 bills in the center console of his Camaro. I have no idea why, I never asked any questions. Next, a car totally unlike the Mustang or the Camaro, the scrappy little Toyota MR2, which came out in 1984. The Mr. 2, as we called it, was a mid-engine rear-wheel drive, two-seat little wedge of a car. And it was basically a copy of the 1972 Fiat Bertoni X19, which was designed by Marcello Gandini, not surprisingly. 
The X19 was a pretty exciting car for 1300 cc's and 75 horsepower. It was a little guy. But by 1982, Fiat had pulled out of North America and the Mr. 2 filled its place nicely. It was powered by the humble four-cylinder from the Corolla, and initially it made just over 100 horsepower, but later it got a supercharger and with 16 valves and twin overhead cams, it made a respectable 145 horses. And it was a car you could flick around and keep the revs high and have a little fun, but like all Toyotas, it was an appliance when you just wanted to get around from point A to point B. And the T-tops were a classic 80s option. I remember the first time I saw the Mr. 2 on the cover of Automobile Magazine. It was their first issue. And they put it up against the Ferrari 308 and declared the MR2 was the better car. And I think they got a lot of hate mail on that. Well, hot on the heels of the MR2 was the Honda CRX SI. Honda was riding high on the success of the Accord and the newly introduced for 1984 Prelude Coupe. And the hatchback CRX earned a loyal following from the start when it debuted in 1985. The first gen CRX was a little boxy, but in 1988 the Gen 2 car got much curvier and it had a really attractive cam tail. And if you don't know what a cam tail is, basically it's an aerodynamic principle that was discovered in the 20s, I believe. And the idea is that if the back of the car is more or less cut off abruptly, it reduces aerodynamic drag. So another good example of a cam tail would be the Shelby Daytona Coupe, or for that matter, the Ford GT40. Anyway, the CRX had that cam tail, right? And then they had a little glass panel on the lower section of the hatchback, which was an Italian design element borrowed from the Lamborghini Espada, which was another Marcello Gandini design. All in all, the CRX was a cheap, sporty, and attractive little coupe, and it became a favorite of autocrossers and, of course, especially the Japanese tuner crowd. But if you wanted something roomier that could devour the pavement at a lightning pace, there were two cars in the 80s that became legends in their own time. The BMW M5 and its little brother, the BMW M3. And granted, they're both a little bit more expensive than a Mr. 2 or a CRX. There are a couple of stories about the birth of the M5. One is that engineers in BMW's motorsport division decided to take the new E28 four-door sedan and swap in the 3.5-liter 286-horsepower straight-six from the M1 supercar. Because the M1's racing career was over, and also because why not? The other story is that Eberhard von Kuhnheim, the CEO of BMW, traveled all over Germany very swiftly with a big security detail. Now remember, this was the early 80s when there was a great deal of tension between communist East Germany and capitalist West Germany. Kuhnheim's executive transport was a 745i turbo, and his security detail needed to keep up, naturally, so he ordered several 5-series sedans to be hot-rodded for that purpose, and supposedly out of that came the M5. But whatever the origin of the car, it was approved for production in 1984 and instantly became a benchmark for production sports sedans. The E28 M5 was a pretty special car. It was hand-built, and the total first-generation production was just over 2,200 units, which made it destined to be a collectible. 
And when you think of BMW's emphasis on performance and driving pleasure, this is the car that set the bar in a way that no other four-door had any expectation of doing. The origin story of the BMW M3 is a little more straightforward because it was a true homologation special. Alright, let's talk really quick about homologation. Basically, in Europe, that's the process whereby a car gets sanctioned for racing based on a certain number of commercially produced units. And to qualify to race any car in the German Touring Car Championship, manufacturers had to build 5,000 units. So in 1986, BMW Motorsport took their new E30 3 Series and fitted a normally aspirated 200-horsepower 4-cylinder, a 5-speed Getrag gearbox, a race-tuned suspension and brakes, and they also did a lot of tweaks to the bodywork for a lower drag coefficient and more downforce. The car also had, may I say, a magnificent set of box flares to accommodate bigger wheels and tires. In fact, the only panel in the M3 shared with the Garden Variety 3 Series was the hood. The production M3 was good for 146 miles per hour, and the racing versions hit 296 horsepower, somewhere around 160 or 65 miles per hour top speed, and they were a huge success winning 18 world championship titles, as well as the 24 hours of the Nürburgring five times, the 24 hours of Spa four times, and they did it without forced induction. In fact, BMW was very resistant to that approach in their production cars for a long time. And here we are today, you can't buy a BMW without a turbocharger. BMW built 17,184 M3 coupes in the first generation's five-year run and only 2,211 M5s. So they're both pretty rare cars. The M3 is commanding much higher prices overall than the M5, which is far more rare. But then again, the M3 has that race history and two doors. Anyway, they're both collectible, great cars. But if you prefer American muscle, the 80s car that claims that crown is the GNX. I think it really marked the official return of the muscle car. So remember how I explained that the Mustang and the Camaro were sort of shy about getting back into high performance? Well, Buick said, hold my beer and watch this. When it was unveiled in 1987, the GNX was the fastest GM production car ever built. It was a heavily modified Buick Grand National, a performance car unto itself, and it was built to mark the end of production for the elderly G-body rear-wheel drive platform. After that, Buick went front-wheel drive and everything kind of went downhill. And the work wasn't actually done by Buick, but by a company called ASC McLaren. The backstory is that in 1969, Bruce McLaren had organized a North American engineering subsidiary to support racing programs in IndyCar and Can-Am. But eventually, McLaren was focused on racing in Europe, and they sold their Detroit operation to the American Sunroof Company, which was started in the early 60s in Los Angeles, doing custom sunroofs and other conversions. But by the late 1970s, they were doing custom convertibles at a time when there weren't as many factory offerings available. And they did a lot of work for OEMs in the 80s, including the Saab 900 and Porsche 944 convertibles. Anyway, 547 factory-built Grand Nationals were shipped to ASC McLaren to be transformed into the Buick GNX. At the heart of the car was a 3.8-liter V6 with an uprated turbocharger that had a special ceramic impeller. 
which was groundbreaking technology in 1987. They also added an air-to-air intercooler, a trick suspension setup, chassis reinforcement, special Stuart Warner gauges, special GNX badging, and a numbered identification plate for each car. Buick modestly claimed 276 horsepower, but independent testing showed the GNX was pumping out more like 300 plus, which again, isn't that impressive today, but in its time, the GNX had the same bad boy status as the Dodge Challenger SRT Hellcat did a few years ago. And by the way, they were marked up by dealers in a similar fashion. Buick engineers wanted the car to be quicker than the Corvette, which it was, and they made sure to point out it was also quicker than the Lamborghini Countach and the Ferrari Testarossa. Granted, they were a little bit detuned for the US market, so not completely fair comparison. The GNX was only available in a sinister high-gloss black with blacked-out trim and wheels, and that led to plenty of Darth Vader jokes, but nobody was laughing at its straight-line performance. In a drag race test, it even dominated a Callaway twin-turbo Corvette. The GNX was a rocket ship. Well, up to now, I've been telling you about cars that were a big success, and they definitely qualify as 80s icons. But let's be real, they've all been pretty conventional. Well, the next one is anything but conventional. Its very reason for existing disappeared before it was a reality, and the company that created it killed the car before it could kill them. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not by much. If you're familiar with military aircraft programs from the 50s and 60s, even just a little bit, you know, they cost a fortune and they yielded a lot of useful knowledge, but they often didn't result in a production airplane and many projects got canceled when they hit snags. Well, it's not a perfect analogy, but it'll do because I'm talking about the Porsche 959. So let's go back to 1981. By that time, the Porsche 911 was nearly 20 years old, and although Porsche was better than anyone else at executing an evolutionary development process in its cars, the limitations of the rear-engined, air-cooled 911 were becoming a concern. One of the things, for example, was they weren't sure how they were going to meet coming emission standards and still be making performance cars in 5 or 10 years. But the International Automobile Federation, or the FIA, had issued regulations for a new class of vehicles in the World Rally Championship, and they called it Group B. The great thing about Group B was that it was pretty much wide open. The cars had to have two seats and a top, and there were a few rules about engine displacement and tire size, but for the most part, it left manufacturers to their own devices when it came to design, layout, materials, dimensions, and power output. And that spawned some of the most rowdy and powerful race machines in history. And the bar for homologation was very low at only 200 units. So naturally, Porsche executives saw this as a great opportunity to push their research and development into new territory. Because racing always improves the breed. And Porsche knows racing. One innovation they'd already been working on was an all-wheel drive system, and rallying was the perfect proving ground for that. So for the 959, Porsche used a twin-cam, 16-valve, flat-six twin-turbo engine, similar to its Le Mans 956 car, and that engine was good for 450 German horsepower. 
And here's something else that made the 959 special. The turbochargers had a genius new setup because they were sequential, meaning one was spooling at low RPM while the other one waited for action higher in the power band. And that virtually eliminated the terrible turbo lag that was inherent with single turbo engines of that era. All that power went through a six-speed gearbox, with one ratio being a low granny gear for extreme off-road terrain, and then it got sent to an all-wheel drive system that the driver could control, biasing power to the front or rear, and even each wheel based on traction needs at any given moment. The engine case was air-cooled, like a conventional 911, but the heads were water-cooled. And they used titanium connecting rods for lightness and strength. And of course driving skill is critical, but the 959 also represented the new era in engine management, and traction control, with microprocessors precisely controlling the turbochargers and wheel traction. The bodywork of the 959 was also cutting edge, with layers of Kevlar and Nomex in the body panels and the floor for a strong, light, and rigid structure. Remember, carbon fiber was still a few years away from being a viable commercial-grade material. So Porsche engineers took the basic 911 shape and they created a highly aerodynamic envelope all around it, widening the body with swooping fender flares and efficient front and rear overhangs and a smoothly integrated rear wing for a drag coefficient of 0.31, which is really good, and they virtually eliminated lift at high speeds. The whole package amounted to a car that could make 0 to 60 in 3.6 seconds with a top speed of 198 miles per hour. Amazing for a production road car. All this development took years, however, and the first season of Group B was in 1982, but the 959 really wasn't ready until 1987. And in the intervening years, Group B had proved to be the most intense and dynamic event in motorsport with virtually zero limits. And unfortunately, that translated into a high number of fatalities for drivers and spectators. After a horrifying crash in the 1986 season, the FIA canceled Group B, and the Porsche 959 had yet to run a single Group B event. But by that time, they'd had numerous auto show displays, and their marketing was in full swing, and the development cars had run in the Perry Dakar Rally. So all the excitement over the 959 was earth-shaking, and Porsche had taken deposits on all of the homologation cars. Building the cars was farmed out to the Bauer Coachworks, with whom Porsche had a long relationship, and Porsche employees supervised the manufacturing process. However, they lost hundreds of thousands of Deutschmarks on each car because they vastly underestimated how much it would cost to produce them. The cars were priced at the equivalent of $300,000 US in what they called the comfort spec, and it was even more if you wanted the competition-prepared sport spec but it cost Porsche more than twice that amount to make each car. Their engineering was remarkable, but there was really no accounting for the antiquated and inefficient manufacturing methods or for economic fluctuations. So in the end, 292 cars were built at Bauer. And that was it. By the late 1980s, Porsche was facing bankruptcy, not because of the 959, but because their product line had a declining market share and new car designs were still a few years from reality. But the money lost on the 959 certainly didn't help. Porsche probably let out a sigh of relief when the last one was delivered, and they were able to recover in the years ahead with new models like the Boxster. And the 959 helped the company to make big leaps in technology. So what's your favorite 80s icon? I know there's a whole bunch of other cars we could talk about, but I'm going to leave it here for now and 
We'll go back to the 80s sometime in the future, I'm sure. Well, that's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to follow the podcast, tell your friends about it, and leave me five stars and a quick review. And all of those things will help me reach more gearheads like you. Buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage if you want to support the show that way. Definitely appreciate it. And that's it for this week. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>